The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads! Power down your Darth Maul lightsaber and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 222 with guest Michelle LaRue Bustamante, recorded live Thursday, March 1st, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now, bringing the just-in-time team system class, Joel Semeniuk, on-site for your development team. Online at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows Forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the only man I know with a USB Pez dispenser, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Thank you, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is your host, Carl Franklin. I'm on the East Coast of the United States, halfway between Boston and New York. New London, Connecticut, and my partner in crime out there on the West Coast, of course, is none other than Richard Campbell. And hey, it's springtime. You know how you can tell in Vancouver? Oh boy, here it comes. It's raining. I was going to say the uh, the hallucinogenic mushrooms stop growing. <laughs> no, it starts to rain, they start to grow. In fact, they grow natively around here. And that's what I said that, you know. <laughs> so I told you the story once of how when I was a kid, I mowed the lawn with bare feet and my feet went numb. <laughs> <laughs> and then your feet doubled in size. <laughs> oh, wait, it was my hands. <laughs> now it's my eyelashes. My house is breathing. <laughs> Mom! <laughs> oh, man. What a fun place. It is a fun place. Hey, let's. Uh, we got a lot of stuff to talk about, so let's just get to the uh, emails. I have one right here. This was a good one. This is from Brian uh, DeCroce. And the subject is, I've lost 60 pounds since listening to .NET Rocks. Okay. And now I'm thinking, hey, I ought to listen to .NET Rocks. <laughs> he says, hey, Carl, I'd like to thank you for your show. In case you didn't know, I've lost approximately 60 pounds since listening to your shows. You see, being a geek, I never really enjoyed exercising that much. But since getting an MP3 player for Christmas, I told myself, what the heck? I should probably listen to some good old DNR with it and jump on the treadmill for the whole length of each show. And I did. Just to give you a better example of how much weight I lost, I'll give you a little visual representation. I had a picture of me before starting to exercise, and the size of the picture is about 350K. <laughs> <laughs> 
I took a picture recently of me after losing all the weight, and the new size is 200K without JPEG compression. Oh, uh, that's hilarious. Not only did I manage to free some disk space in my SD card for the camera, but I feel healthier. So, yeah, thank you very much. Oh, by the way, great show with Jack Greenfield, and I did get your elevator joke in the middle of the show. Not bad. Take care, Carl. So, there you go. <laughs> wow. Now that we're doing two shows a week, maybe you'll lose 120 pounds. 120 pounds. Brian, we want an email from you. There you go. And congratulations. You definitely get some swag. Nice. Yeah. Uh, interestingly enough, I've got an email here also about the Jack Greenfield show. It was a it's great show. John Dyer. I really enjoyed that show. I had a lot of fun. And it starts off, no holding back straight into it. Okay, I just listened to the Jack Greenfield show. This was one of your shows that causes a lot of tension in my brain. Mm. He talks about groups developing tools that allow other groups to leverage them to their advantage. Then I remember a point from the previous show on .NET Nuke where one of the major system optimizations was to reduce the number of modules, DLLs, in the application to improve startup performance. An app I work in has what seems like a million DLLs loaded at runtime, and the start time is, and I'll put in the emphasis for him, slow. <laughs> hey, man, that sounded like Barry White. Do that again. <laughs> we got it together, baby. Wait, let's put some music behind it. Say that real slow. Go ahead, man. <laughs> we got it together, baby. <laughs> Can I get back to the email Yes, now? please do. So now I wonder how Jack's ideas get implemented. Doesn't he advocate having large numbers of small modules as a way to reuse all this code? Otherwise, you'd have to do the cut and paste thing to get all the code into your modules. Isn't that going to be a performance issue? What I'm thinking now is that you need another Microsoft guy to discuss what they were thinking about on the loading front to address these types of issues. Or is Jack's idea still a little pie in the sky? Will his ideas be better implemented in a couple of years when we really start to leverage multi-core, multi-processor systems? I don't, I don't know as if he got it. Um, well, you know, there's an implication here that the code would already be compiled. And I think a lot of the stuff that Jack was talking about was before compilation. Yeah, I think it's code generation, template generation stuff that doesn't actually get compiled into your projects, but helps you build the software. Right. Isn't that what and it's you know, all about? The story he told us about building the mobile operating system, because you have all those different platforms, yeah. that's definitely got to be pre-compilation. Yeah, and that was about taking stuff from a list and packaging it together. That's like a uber smart compiler kind of thing. So, right. yeah. I mean, I think John was probably thinking that, you know, we were talking about programming tools, you know, like the, the, the controls and stuff that we're used to using today, which is not really a software factory. No, yeah, I think it comes further back than that. But it brings to my mind that maybe we need to do more on software factories. In fact, the only problem I have with Jack's show is it was fairly conceptual. Yeah. So perhaps what we've got to do is do an applied software factory show. Maybe that's it. You know, maybe yeah. a DNR TV or something where we can actually see something. We'll work it out for yeah, sure. We'll, we'll I mean, definitely I'm, work it out. I'm taking feedback here and saying, what would I do to help John? Yep. One more comment he makes. He says, as an interesting aside, here's something that came to mind as I was listening to the show, and he provides a link to Coding Horror. And coding I, Horror. I, yeah, I've got it. I've got the Shrinksterized here. I'm not going to read the blog entry. The Shrinkster is shrinkster.com slash N5Y. Okay. 
Now, if you've never read Coding Hoarder, go read it. It's great. The it guy is- who authors it, in fact, his name is Jeff Atwood. And this particular blog post talks about the SmackDown learning model. <laughs> yeah. And really, the idea is that if you have a conflicting point of view when presenting an idea, people learn more. Yeah. Which is sort of like what you and I do. That's true. You know, we don't always agree. We have a range of view. You get two different points, and it strengthens the model. It's why all the duet-type sessions and conferences do so well. That's right. Yeah. Anyway, and honestly, this is the email that made me think, you know what? We need Jeff Atwood on the show. Let's get Jeff Atwood on the show. So I looked around and, and checked into him. Turns out he works for Vertigo Software. Hey, we know them. Yeah, Vertigo Software run by uh, Scott Stanfield, fellow RD, yep. who has nothing but good things to say about Jeff. Uh, and also a previous uh, guest on .NET Rocks, but that was Absolutely. before your time. We have to have him back for sure. And I think we'll get Jeff sometime in the future. Yep. Okay, and now it's uh, announcement time. Okay. Let's start with the West Michigan Day of .NET, Richard. What's that all about? Our friend Christopher Woodruff sent through an email a little while ago talking about the West Michigan Day of .NET. It's on May 19th in Grand Rapids at the Davenport University. Grand Michigan's Rapigan. Jan, what? Say that again. Grand Michigan's Rapigan. Okay, I'm just not smart enough to say that. <laughs> I practiced it. Okay, and Shrinksterized, if you want more information, is links a little lengthy at shrinkster.com slash N1H. You can take a look at that if you're in the area. Sounds like a great show to go see. Talking lots of .NET 3.0, Office 2007, all that good stuff. Yep, and uh, we're in Orlando probably as you're listening to this, this weekend and next week doing uh, Dev Connection. So that's going on. Not really, no need to announce it. Uh, also coming up here, we've got uh, some, uh, the the big conference is, uh, of course, Mix 07. This is the one everybody's waiting for with bated breath to hear what the big announcement's going to be. Yep, still don't know. Still don't know. Yep, and that's, uh, what's the, what are the details on Mix 07? It's going to be... Details on Mix 07, obviously, uh, in Las Vegas at the Venetian Hotel. Yep. April 30th to May 2nd. All right. And go to the website visitmix.com. Excellent. Definitely worth your while. And one more code camp from our folks across the pond. Uh It's the first Dutch.net code camp. Awesome. Going to be on May 12th. And their website is nice and easy. It's www.code-camp.nl. Hey, how cool is that? Very cool. Awesome. Now it's time for the uh, the job posting section of .NET Rocks, which uh, seems to be gaining some momentum here. First of all, it's the New York tour, uh, Greg Brill's Infusion New York City uh, tour offer. Check it out at shrinkster.com slash KH6. The deal is you get uh, to live rent-free in Manhattan for a year, plus a New York salary and other good perks too. There's also a gig in, uh, and that's you got to be, you got to go to New York, but you don't necessarily have to be American. You can come from anywhere if you're qualified. Uh, there's also a great gig in Washington, D.C. for ASP.NET gurus. And the details on that are shrinkster.com slash MMJ. And uh, are you located near or willing to be relocated to Washington, D.C.? It's going to be a great team of developers uh, working on ASP.NET. You got to got to be hip. You got to you know know what Scott Guthrie knows, basically, and uh, have good interpersonal skills and all the all the details of that uh, awesome job are also listed, as I said, at shrinkster.com slash MMJ. All right, Richard, it's time to bring on our favorite guest, Michelle. And I don't say that in lieu of all the other guests, but we like Michelle. 
She's an old friend of the show. Michelle Rubustamante is Chief Architect of iDesign Incorporated, Microsoft Regional Director for San Diego, a Microsoft MVP for Connected Systems, and a BEA Technical Director. I, I'm going to kill myself. I'm not worthy, man. Jeez. <laughs> I feel so inadequate right now. At iDesign, Michelle provides training, mentoring, and high-end architecture consulting services focusing on web services, scalable and secure architecture design for .NET, interoperability, and globalization architecture. She is a member of the International .NET Speakers Association, INETA, a frequent conference presenter, conference chair for SD West and is frequently published in several major technology journals. Michelle is also on the board of directors for IASA, which is the International Association of Software Architects, and a program advisor to UCSD Extension. That's uh, University of California, San Diego. Her latest book is Learning Wikifa, WCF, O'Reilly 2007. You can check out her blog at thatindigogirl.com. Reach her at mlb at idesign.net or visit www.idesign.net. And her main blog, which is different from her book blog, which is at dasblonde.net. Hi, Michelle. Hi. Is it really true? You're done? Well, so done is such a strong word, isn't it? (laughs) Your part of the bargain is done. I'm in in the phase one of done, which means (laughs) I finally, after, no joke, Two weeks straight of three-hour sleep. Like, wow. I don't mean just sort of glossing over that. Like, literally every single night, <laughs> I think I was up until like four or five in the morning, and I got three-hour sleep, and then I got back to it. Uh, that's just enough to refresh and get rid of the shakes, right? Michelle, yeah. you may be the James Brown of the .NET industry, the hardest-working gal in, sh- in uh, .NET business. And No, I'm serious. I mean, I don't know anybody who works harder than you. So, yeah, we need to slow that down, right? Because I used to have, I used to be the one that had the most fun, you see? So now it's like kind of reversed. I got to kind of find a balance in the middle there. How many conferences but, uh, have I been to lately where you were there and we didn't even have a drink together because you were working, working, working all the time? If you weren't on stage, you were in your room working. I know. It's true. It's really sad, isn't it? It's like, terrible. It's such a shame to, you know, it's like you can take the girl out of Toronto, but you can't take the Toronto out of the girl. So deep down underneath all that, I want to go out and party. I'm just thinking you built up a year's worth of party demand. <laughs> I want to yeah. be at that first party. <laughs> I have a feeling you will be. Are you Dev Connections? You're going to blow a gasket. Oh, Dev Connections God, look out. in Orlando. Oh, no. <laughs> you better look out because that's the last week of March, which is when I should be just coming out of hell. We should be able to order margaritas at the hot tub. <laughs> I, think, I think we need to do that. Yeah. Definitely. So, so listen to this, though. So seriously, two weeks straight, three hours sleep a night just to pound out the final edits. And then I get it done. And meanwhile, you know, my husband, who's just a saint, right? He's cooking me dinner. And, uh, you know, he'll go out and keep our friends friends because otherwise we'd have none left. <laughs> right. It'd dinner. all be burned up by now. So, Friend you know, maintenance. Out and he keeps the friendships going. And meanwhile, he's a doctor, right? And so, you know, he should be busier than me. But here I am holed up in my office. He's slipping food under the door and stuff. And 
Uh, the know, listeners might be thinking that, ah, that's the reason, you know, she's, she's, you know, competing for busyness with her doctor <laughs> husband, but an ER doc too, right? We're not talking about, you know, guy in a, in a little room in, in the suburbs. He's an ER doc. Well, and I was going to say, you were like that before you got married. Yeah, probably. But, but check this out, what he says to me. So here I am, you know, every once in a while I got in a bit of a sucky mood, like, God, you know, you get to go out and have all the fun. All I want is a nice glass of Latour 97, and what am I doing? I'm writing a book, right? <laughs> and he's like, like, isn't it nice you're a doctor and you get to come home and it's like 8 o'clock and, or 7 o'clock or 6 o'clock? I mean, what a dream, you know? You get to work out, have fun, go out. He's like, Michelle, I save lives. Screw <laughs> <laughs> you. Like, seriously, what am I supposed to say to that? How do I answer to that, right? You say, well, you write the software that enables him to save lives. I'm saving lives one line of code at a time. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, I think we're all happy for this to be done. It's oh. really um, a pretty nice feeling. Well, and your marriage has obviously survived this. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. been a long time. It's been two years, hasn't it? been like a year and a half because it's sort of like I started it and I signed the contract in May 2005. But keep in mind that right at that time, I was actually beginning a project for the card space team, which was about two months long. And I didn't really start the book until August of that year. And and good thing the product got pushed back a bit too, because you needed the time. Oh, I needed the time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you know what it is? It's like you always think, okay, so let's see. I'm going to stay home as many weeks possible, take a few fewer clients and try and get this thing done really fast. So let's see, I could start booking my schedule next January or February and fill it up. So that's what I did. Meanwhile, the product wasn't done, and I wasn't done, and so I literally had five months in the middle there where I couldn't even touch the book because I was so slammed with, like, conferences and other work. Right. So, so it's, it's not even that I worked, like, fully, you know, every month on this book for a year and a half. I probably really spent about eight months. But my schedule, I thought I'd be less busy than, I, than when I wrote my other book, but I was actually more busy, I think. So, yeah, it was a bit a bit insane. So that's why you never saw me at conferences, which is why I've got a whole pent-up pile of partying left inside. Oh, boy. And and some lascivious alliteration there, too. Oh, is that pent-up pile of partying. A pile of partying. <laughs> Say that five times really fast. <laughs> Very good. Okay, we'll have to remember that over the first margarita, a pent-up pile of partying. Yeah, so so let's talk about the book. Let's talk about what you've actually been thinking about for the last two years. Yeah, sure. So WCF, right? Uh, the thing that makes the world turn today. At least that's what I'm going to call it. Um, I don't know. I think if you look at .NET 3, .NET 3 is, is obviously you know sitting on top of .NET 2 with a whole bunch of new features for everything from you know, uh, the system side, which would be the WCF aspect, and then you've got workflow, which more and more, every client I talk to doesn't want just WCF, right? They also want to coordinate workflow uh, through the system. Um, and there's lots of good uses for that. And then we've got WPF, which is a bit maybe further out there just because the tooling isn't quite there, but certainly the people that really want it, you know, they're going to work hard for it today. Right. Because mm -hmm. it, it is pretty darn cool. Um, and then you've got card space, right, which is really more of a security aspect that's becoming hotter and hotter as we sit here and speak. I yeah. Think. Um, and so, so 
if you look at the, I guess, order of priority there, I'd say WCF is sort of the thing that everybody has to have right now, right? Because we were for so long building systems and, you know, trying to figure out how do we make calls across process boundaries, right? We always have to do that somewhere in a system unless it's a, you know, simple, small application. So how do we do that, right? You know, we, we need to either do remoting or use enterprise services and put a remote comm object over there somewhere, or we use web services with, when we need interop or when we need to punch a hole through the firewall. So the problem is, at least, you know, from what I've seen with, with a lot of people, is that they end up picking just one of those technologies that they know really well, and they use that for everything because they don't have time to learn all three. And yet, each of them had a different appropriate use. So, WCF sort of is the magic, right, that brings all that together so that we can learn one technology and actually one object model, praise the Lord, mm. and, you know, just use that to to do any of the above, but you decide to flip on which switch you want when you deploy. So, I design my system one way. I don't have to decide between, is it a web service or is it a service component or is it a remote Marshall by ref object? Right, you know, right. Uh, I just build a service, and a service can be deployed over binary TCP or over name pipes, or it could be queued if it's one way, or it could be a web service. And, and it's all in the configuration, isn't it? Exactly. And not in the code. That's what I love about WCF. Right. Well, it can be in the code if you want to enforce things, right? Okay. There's always that. But but the configuration aspect is really more of a, at the deployment time, I get to make my decision. And that's really powerful because, you know, developers shouldn't really care about that. All they care about is, this is the payload I need, right? This is right. the data I right. expect to do my work. You know, uh, Michelle, the thing that's always baffled me about um, WCF and about, you know, SOA in general is is implementations of contracts. And that seems to me to be the the sort of, you know, the the biggest head-scratcher for people to try to figure out. I mean, how do you sort of automate that? I mean, can you, t- can you walk us maybe through a simple example? Sure, sure. I mean, if, I guess in a simple, uh, in a, when we go to design a system, the first thing you have to know is sort of what are the major chunks of functionality you're going to expose, right? So there's sort of a, an implied set of major business components that you would be building anyways. And those business components, if you were to call them directly, would be called in process, right, with the application. So to distribute that work, we put it in a service. So that means we need to create a contract. So the contract may be sort of a subset of what the business components can do. It's really more like you're looking at, um, you know, I need to, you know, build a PDF from some XML and send an email. So maybe that's a document service that's over there somewhere. And it's got operations like, you know, create document or, you know, get document report or uh, something like that, right? And so you need to send the data required to that operation to do the work. So what's an operation? An operation is really just a method on a class that happens to be on a special type of class, which is a service. And so when you implement a service, what you're really doing is you're creating an interface with a set of methods and you're marking those methods with operation contract to opt in so that they become part of the official description for the service, and then you implement that interface on a type, and then you host it. So once you host it and expose you know, that contract, that interface, if you will, over a particular address, now it's available. And 
So when you think about design, what you're really thinking about are what are the operations, just like when you create the top-level class or business component, what are the operations I need to make available and what is the data I need to receive to do the work and what might I be returning? So the the contract to me is more than the interface though, right? It's all the metadata that you get in a WSDL uh, right. document. Okay. You know, so, so if I want to, uh, does it also include any kind of business logic that would say, you know, what's acceptable and what isn't acceptable, security payloads, all that kind of stuff? Okay, so what you're referring to is sort of the next step. So it always starts with what are my operations and what is the actual message payload I receive in return. Okay, basic interfaces, yeah. Right, and that's what I just talked about. But when you actually host it, what you're doing is you're saying, these operations I just defined are available at this address, HTTP blah, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and these are the, you know, protocols we use. So what you're doing is you're creating an endpoint, and an endpoint includes not only the contract, which is the operations, but also the binding. And the binding is describing, for example, what security requirements are. Do I pass Windows credentials or, you know, a username password? Um, it also describes things like reliable messaging. It also describes, of course, the protocol, TCP or HTTP. Um, and that all gets described in WSDL, which is your web service description language. So it should really be called service description language now, SDL, yeah. because it's being used for everything now. Um, and that's actually been part of WSDL from the beginning, right? Yep. So what's new, or what's more new, is that WSDL also includes this thing called WS policy, which is um, the newer standard for including policy descriptors inside WSDL. And that's where the security requirements go and the transaction requirements go and the reliable messaging re- requirements go. So all of that gets put in a policy section of the WSDL, which then provides enough information. So you can think of the WSDL as containing every single last bit of information that a client would need to know to create a proxy and an equivalent configuration. So WSDL is still there in WCF. It's not, is it not abstracted any cleaner or? Well, or it, it depends what you mean by that. So WSDL is as clean as it's going to get, right? It's a standard. Sure. And so what's happening is, you know, WCF does not, you don't have to look at the XML of the WSDL ever if you don't want to. WCF lets you configure bindings. Right, so you just express what you want in the configuration and in the code, obviously, with your interfaces, mm-hmm. and and then the the SDL, I, fig- I guess we'll call it SDL, gets generated automatically, just like it does with the regular yeah. web service. Yeah, so what happens is there's a runtime abstraction called a service description object. And that service description is constructed when you host the service, and it's available in memory. And so what you can do is two things. One, you can generate the WSDL as a file and export it and send it an email to people and say, here, go have fun. You know, here's all the information you need. Or you can do what's called dynamic metadata exchange, which is a way to hit live endpoints and say, get me your policy, right? So all that's available. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, when I asked you about contracts before, I think I was really thinking about policy. You know, the, the policies about, you know, what we're going to accept, what we're going to do. And this whole dynamic policy, uh, meta, dynamic metadata exchange is really fascinating to me. Yes. And, and I wonder, you know, um, what would be uh, an example in which that would be necessary to use? Because, don't you know, con- these interfaces, you... you, you tendency is to set them up 
get them working and leave them working? I mean, why have a dynamic metadata exchange? Uh, one example would be because policy can change. So in theory, when you publish a WSDL, you should never change anything that will affect the client, right? Okay. But if your policy is that, you know, for example, security requirements, um, when you do federation, right. um, card space, which is, you know, a way to federate identity as well, um, actually needs to dynamically find out from a security token service what credentials do you need so that it can present a dialogue, in, you know, to uh, a user to collect those credentials to make the call. Mm. So, basically, you can either hard code all that into the client application so that that information is already available, or you can dynamically prompt the user to provide the correct credentials. And so that's where we're heading down the road, is that you're dynamically able to do that with policy. Not a lot of people use it yet, Carl, so it's it's one of those things that is fascinating, like you said, and it's important, um, but it's not widely used because right now it's not built into the plumbing, you know, to prompt. Right. And then and, in a sense that so much of this functionality is just going to start happening under yeah. the hood as we get newer versions of the tools. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And there are people using it today. It's like sort of like with WPF. You, If you want it bad enough, right, you will put in the extra effort today to yeah. use Metadata Exchange, and all the capabilities are there, and it's not that difficult. But it's extra work. So the question is, do you need it, and do you want it that bad? Right. And i, I got to imagine that now... Uh, your job has, you know, back you you were an early adopter of the WS Star standards, and and you explained those to everybody when everyone else was scratching their heads, and uh, now n- not so much. I mean, you don't have to go down and understand all that stuff, but yet, you know, when you teach, like when you taught your WCF class here, you know, you're you're digging in really really deep. But it must be a different experience now that uh, WCF is there and there's so much less code to write. You know what I find really interesting is that having the background in WS Star actually, you know, is a really good uh, complement to WCF in in a couple of ways because people still need need to do web services, right? So we we want people to start thinking in terms of, do I want reliable session? Do I want secure session? Do I want... Uh, this type of credential or that type of credential, uh, without thinking about the standard underneath. But the fact is that as soon as you are doing interop with other platforms, you care about that. And so yeah. people end up asking me a different question, which is, how do I achieve this standard with WCF? Because they're not clear on which configuration turns into that exact standard so that they can be compatible. How does this tie in with the whole WSE bundling then? So it's it's compatible um, in the sense that WSE gave us things like, uh, of course, Oasis WS Security, which was the first set of security standards available, like username token, character, right. so on, right? Um, and on top of it, it had an early implementation of things like um, addressing and uh, uh, secure conversation, which is a way to have a session that's secure, so you don't re-authenticate every call for right. long-term communication. Um, so all that was implemented in WSI. So what happens is WCF, you know, supersedes that and provides us with the latest and greatest standards, as well as 
implementations of the backward compatible standards, because remember, each of these evolved over time, so there was an earlier footprint that was implemented that we need to still support. And yeah, you don't want to break the earlier implementations. Right, but, but you can just pick that. It's part of the binding, right? You just say, I want version X of addressing, right. and then you get that, and the serialization plumbing does all that work for you. So what you do need to know is, what do I, what do I need to achieve? What do I need to turn on? You know, you mentioned serialization plumbing. One of the features that I really, really enjoy about WCF is the whole, you know, letting go of, of strong versioning on on each side so that if, for example, if you your contract is uh, has a customer object and uh, it's looking for, you know, name, address, and phone number in the customer object and then... Uh, some a new customer object comes out that adds a zip code field. You can send the object that has the zip code field, and the older version um, will accept it and just ignore the zip code. Right. I love that. Yeah, yeah. There's it's actually built in version tolerance, which is pretty good. Now that can be a good thing and a bad thing. So it all depends on on what your requirements are. You obviously you know. have to know what you're doing. Yeah, I think I think it's. It's more like if you don't know what you're doing, you're going to be okay. And if you do know what you're doing, then you want to give some thought to, is that sort of automatic version tolerance acceptable to you? Or do you want to know when a new client who has the new contract, who's using the new customer, comes in? Yeah, and you can turn it off if you need to, but it's good to have it. But this has been one of the struggles with WSE at the beginning is as soon as you tried to interrupt, each WSC bundle gave you specific versions of different standards. Oh, that, yeah. You, you had to do a lot of jiggling to make sure you matched up those different version bundles. Well, and and in many cases, they just weren't compatible, right? Like right. WSI 2 and WSI 3, you know, you don't put them together. You, yeah, you're not going to get anywhere. So how does, does WCF actually address this? That. Yes, it does, because you select which version, so there's always a default serialization. When I use um, basic HTTP binding, which probably most people won't use much, um, but that is your, you know, simple SOAP 1.1 Azimex web service, right? Right. Now, most people are using SOAP 1.2, which you get by default with WS HTTP binding. So there's really two key web service bindings, right? Mm-hmm. And when you select WS HTTP binding, you get for free... Uh, for the low, low price of, right, you get SOAP <laughs> 1.2, you get Windows authentication, which you can switch if you need to, uh, you get addressing 1.0, which is the final version as opposed to the August 2004 version or whatever it is. Right. Um, and then you get, um, you know, a basic implementation of, of WS security, you know, using Windows credentials. So that's turned on by default. So then what do I do? If I want addressing the old version to compare be compatible with WSI, for example, then I could go in and change the protocol we're using for addressing and say, don't use addressing 1.0, use addressing, again, I can't remember exactly which one it is. It's like August 2000 something. Right. Yeah. So it sounds to me like WSE, there's not going to be a WSE 4 that WCF supersedes all of this. Yeah, Absolutely. In fact, I think a little earlier in our talk here, I said exactly those words. WCF supersedes all of this. Right. <laughs> you just weren't listening, Mr. Campbell. Well, no, I was listening. I just say it better. <laughs> say it better. It was so impressive. But I think it's a fairly important thing that if you've been walking down the WSC path, mm-hmm. you know, you're already 
you're going to get all of that in WCF and so much more. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Well, and and I think the biggest, you know, again, one of the biggest selling points of WCF is that you don't have to learn three object models. Right. So the favorite question is then from people, well, for how long will that be before another one comes out, right? But, I mean, the truth is that, you know, this has been an evolution. Yeah. Enterprise services from remoting, from Azimax. And, you know, we've reached a point now where we're at sort of the bottom of the curve. So, I mean, I think you could be pretty safe to say at least five to, you know, eight years we're going to be building on this stack. I mean, I can't commit beyond that, and I'm sure Microsoft wouldn't even make a statement about it, but that's not the point. We're, we're pretty solid here. This is awesome. Well, and WCF has abstracted the protocols. So, you know, in theory, new protocols can come and go, and WCF can absor- absorb them. Exactly. So the only reason to replace the actual communication technology would be is if for some reason, you know, the extensible stack is not you know, making it possible to do this. So what right. will probably happen is we're going to see that because it's so extensible, people might build pre-canned things that you do in the future that simplify how we configure a binding, but we're going to be using the same stack. Right. Maybe it will be more like, you know, I actually put a single, you know, configuration attribute and I can, by the way, build those today, but maybe those will come with the plumbing in the future, right, in a future version where it's just kind of canned inside this one little trigger. Michelle, you've, you're known for doing really good demos. What are some of the coolest demos that you're, that you're planning to do at, at uh, say, Dev Connections and Dev Teach and some of these other conferences? Um, well, I think uh, I'm big on security. With WCF, so I've been doing a lot of work with uh, both CardSpace and also with ClaimSpace security. I actually built a. Uh, right now, I guess I should give some background. The way WCF is set up is that every single token for any type of you know credential comes in and is converted into a list of claims. Okay, so what's a claim? Right, it's a it's it's a statement about either an identity or a possession of a right. So if I were to do uh, a Windows credential, one of my claims would be the groups I'm in or a set of claims, and another claim would be my identity, my username. And those are potentially SIDs, for example, right, in Windows credentials. If it's a username password, my claim is, you know, my username is this, et cetera. So claims don't mean a lot the way we normally do role-based security because we just expect that username to get converted into a role, and then we do role-based security at the service. But if I was doing something richer, like um, in the old days when we did permission-based um, authorization, right, where instead of having a role, we actually have a list of permissions that you're allowed to, you know, work with, and that gives me read-write access, for example, versus update or delete. Right. And so that's a classic example, right, CRUD activities. You know, what am I allowed to do? So instead of attaching it to a role, we want to make roles more dynamic, and we just use permissions. So that's really the equivalent of claims, in a way. Um, Only claims is like a first-class citizen in the web services world, right? Because they've got this token called a SAML token that can contain everything from just your, you know, basic, you know, information, who are you, authentication claim, or it can contain all of your roles or all of your rights that you have in the system, and then that can be carried around and float with you as you make calls down through the service chain. So it's a pretty powerful thing to do claims-based security because what happens is instead of developers having to know 
which role is allowed to do what. All they do is they write code that says this operation needs somebody to have um, read access to this set of tables. Right. Um, or write access to this set and so on and so forth. And what you do is you come up with a list of permissions or, as we call it now, claims that fit with this system when you do the system design. And then you allocate those rights to people when they authenticate. But the person building the authentication and the rights management aspect can be completely decoupled from the developers that are building the services because all they care about is what rights do you need to have attached to the security context to call this operation done, right? Whether it comes from the user or yeah. from the role, it all looks the same. It all looks the same because it's just claims. It's just a set of claims that got attached to the security context. And so it's pretty powerful, and it gives you the ability. I mean, I don't know how many people I've talked to even before WCF came out that role-based security wasn't enough, right? Everybody wants dynamic roles. They want to be able to rename roles. They want to be able to change what a role can do. They want to be able to take a role and say, well, I want this role, but I want to take away this privilege. So what does that evaluate to, right? It comes down to claims. Right. It comes down to, I need a list of, of simple rights that you either have or don't have, and maybe you come in with a role, and I map those to claims, but at the end of the day, we just want to work with the claim. Yeah, so, so you can you can aggregate those claims under roles, but either way, when it goes to, to applying those security rules, it's going to roll them down into all of the claims. Right. Now, how does this set of claims attach to card space? Okay, well, maybe one step before that, how do I get claims in WCF to work with, Right. So every token maps to a set of claims, but if the token I'm using is a SAML token, which can be issued by Cardspace, so we'll talk about that, um, then that SAML token is sort of, uh, you know, all the claims inside of it get attached to what we call the security context in the service. At okay. The service. So let's just assume now that the service developer has done its thing and said, you know, these are the claims you need to get in, so we're done. Now what happens is we have to figure out a way to generate the token. And so there's a lot of ways to do that, right? One is um, you could have, uh, well, actually generate the claims. One is a user could call into the service, give their username, password, and then you create this kind of separate little thing called an authorization policy that looks up the user's role and maps it to claims before the call gets to the operation. Oh, so you could actually pre-populate that claim list before you yeah. put it down. And that's sort of like a lightweight way to start towards the claims-based approach, right? Where okay. instead of you know creating a separate security token service and all that magical stuff, let's just unify all of the different credentials. If it's Windows or username or certificate, let's just map those to claims before the service gets called. And we'll put that in this little component that's reusable. Okay? Now, have we got a definition for SAML somewhere? Yeah, I was just going to ask. Oh, uh, SAML. Um, God, you have to ask one of the, you know, like, first in, first out, right? So, uh, secure uh, markup and... Uh, yeah, okay. So, it's a security token. Security, security token. assertion markup language. There you go. Yeah. Thank you, Wikipedia. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Might be wrong, though. It's Wikipedia. Might be wrong. Check its references. Yeah. I'd like to mention that uh, this portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at Telerik, Telerik RAD Controls, the most comprehensive suite of components for Windows Forms and ASP.NET applications. And you can find them online at www.telerik.com.
So, um, so, so now come into how do I generate a SAML token? So you could do that by having users in the client application, let's say, use a username and password, but log in to a central service called the security token service. And that security token service would have the responsibility of knowing who you are as a user or as a Windows user or a username and password or a certificate and say, okay, I'm going to generate a SAML token for you with your stuff, right? Right. And that SAML token comes back to the client application, which then is used to make the actual call to the service. Now, all the client application thinks it's doing is calling the service because it's using this binding called a federation binding in WCF. But what it's really doing is it's making a separate set of calls under the hood to go to get the security token and then attach it to the call to the actual service. So it's all done sort of in the plumbing, right? Where it should be. Yeah, but another way to do this is to use Cardspace because what Cardspace does is two things. Um, uh, It actually is an identity provider, so it allows you to select these visual cards that, you know, map to claims. Right. And so, for example, if I was just, you know, uh, logging into a website and instead of every time having to remember my username and password, can I hear a, you know, (laughs) a comment on how many people are, you know, really sick and tired of trying to remember their password. I just had to do it again the other day. Right. So, you know, we have this ability to associate a card with our account if the site supports it. And so what that means is I go into Cardspace and I create a little, you know, card that has my email and my name and my birth date if I feel like it. Now, this is a digital entity. This isn't a real card. I just have to keep pulling that metaphor out because somebody confuses people. Right. Oh, good point. So, yeah, you're going in and you're creating a uh, a list of claims, basically, about yourself, and you're saving it as a, quote-unquote, information card. And so that information card gets stored locally on the machine associated with you, and then when if a site supports it and you've associated your card, then you can log in with a click, right? So instead of typing a username and password, you click on Cardspace, and it brings up the UI, and you select the correct card that satisfies the claims, and then that generates a token and sends it to the service. Yeah, it's sort of like the toolbar autofill stuff on steroids, kind of. Exactly. Yeah. So so now that's probably not all that useful for an enterprise application because, you know, an email address and a name, anybody could type that in. So what we really need are what we call managed cards. So there's personal cards, which are the things you create yourself, and there's managed cards that can be issued by the actual service provider. And what they do is they give you an information card that you install and that it's signed by them so we know it's secure and not been tampered with. And we install it, and what it carries is just information about the claims that you can issue, but it doesn't actually hold your Social Security, for example, or anything like that. It only holds the list of claims that can be supported by this card. Right. Which means when I go to an application, whether it be a website or a service, web service, and I say, I want to make a call, it says, well, I need these three claims. I need your Social Security, or this and your that, and I need it to be issued by this provider. So obviously only the cards that are going to appear inside Cardspace are going to be the cards that can be satisfied by those required claims. Now, are all of those criteria going to have to come from one card? Well, they can. Yeah, that's what I'm hearing is that you can make multiple cards with multiple claims. Like you can make one just for your social security number. Right. So imagine I am doing, you know, online banking 
and I have a smart client application or a web app because it can be either. Right. And basically, they issue me a card, and I, you know, install it willingly into my system. And there needs to be obviously a secure way for them to get me that card. So that's you know one of the challenges. Right. But let's just assume I get the card and and basically install it, and then there's a step for me to log into the site and associate the card to make sure that nobody malicious got the card. Okay. Yeah. So now we've got a situation where I have a card installed in my machine that carries a list of things that the bank needs, like maybe my account number, okay? Yeah. And it doesn't actually have the account number on my machine. So if I lose my machine on the street and somebody gets into it, they're never going to know my account number, right? And I can protect the card by putting a PIN number on it, and obviously my machine has a login. So, I mean, I have layers of protection here. Um, but the point is that when I log into that site or call that service using the Windows client, I'm going to be presented with a card space UI, and I'm going to see just that card presented to me because it's the only card that can possibly satisfy the claims. Because and I, and I was just thinking, I'm going to end up with a lot of cards. No. I mean, I mean you're I'm only going to ha- see the cards that apply. That are applied in a given scenario. actual application that will satisfy the claim. So I select that card, and it generates a sample token. But here's the interesting part. Because it's a managed card, it actually points to another service to get the token. So the token right. that contains my actual account number is encrypted from the minute it leaves that service to the time it gets to the target application. So I never get to look at that you know, account number on the wire. Yeah, the content of the card never goes across the wire. Exactly. Which is fascinating. It's encrypted. It's but encrypted I could see, you know, I could see obviously banks are easy ones. Uh I could see my Dell account being set up that way for Absolutely. for buying machines. Absolutely. And so this, all of a sudden you think as soon as you open up the e-commerce store, you're thinking, "Wow, I'm going to end up I buy a lot of stuff. I'm going to have a lot of cards." So imagine everybody, you know, when they hit a website or, you know, even when they're using Windows applications, but websites are probably more common for this. Um, Instead of, again, having to type in the username password, they just click login with card and then they select the card and away we go. And it's just incredibly pure because as a user, I get to see where I'm sending those claims because I'm going to see where it's going. It's going to show me, you know, uh, uh, you know, the site where it's going to. So if it doesn't say, you know, paypal.com, it says, you know, IP address, blah, 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 forward slash, secure net, you know, whatever. Right. Uh, it's not going to the right place. So I have an opportunity to not send it as well. Yeah, I mean, that's the big thing is still that level. Of, I was just thinking, if there was only one card, just send it. But I like that control that I choose whether I want to send my credentials or not and which credentials to send. Right, and it'll give you a warning if the target site doesn't match the um, actual uh, certificate. So, for right. example, you know, if, if, if the certificate name, you know, server certificate, as in digital certificate, does not match the domain where it's going, then, for example, that will be, you know, a red flag presented to you right there in the Cardspace UI. So they're trying to come up with ways to sort of better educate users on where they're sending information and preventing them from, you know, accidentally going to the wrong place. And if you're using one of these managed cards, even if you do accidentally give it to someone they shouldn't have it, they can't do anything with it anyway. Well, right, because they'd have to associate it with the account. I mean, obviously, there's always risk if I, you know, leave my machine out and I don't have a password for the machine and I don't right. have a PIN number on the card. Could somebody use my machine and possibly, you know, 
go to that site and select the card. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of ifs in there, right? Yeah. It's still much more secure than a sticky note with my password on it. <laughs> right. The, the big thing here is not being able to carry away those credentials from your machine. Right. And you'd have to have the credentials. You have to be able to get in there to export it. Yeah. And you'd have to know the PIN number to do that as well. And some uh, sites will not allow you to use the card from another machine because they can detect that it's coming from another machine. Right. Um, and, and they can prevent that to add security to the user. So that would mean I'd have to go to another machine and explicitly associate the card again, which means I'd have to know my account. Right. Uh, or maybe so you just get a yet another card for a different machine. Right. There's that. Or I think more than likely they'll just associate the same card from multiple machines. But for your own protection, you have to do that explicitly. Yeah. Um, it's a separate so there, step. It's, it's really interesting. I mean, I, I think that, you know, the idea of protecting users but also making it really easy to log in um, is a really powerful story behind CardSpace. And I think, you know, from a service provider's perspective, you know, me building web services, um, you know, this is all interoperable, by the way. Like, information cards are XML. Well, I was just going to bring that up because isn't this one of the few technologies, this is not a Microsoft-centric technology, it's one of the few that have really been adopted widely. Well, I wouldn't say widely yet, but I would say that, you know, there are these other, um, you know, I guess, uh, identity providers popping up for non-Windows platform like OpenID right. um, that will support information cards. And then, of course, uh, Firefox, for example, as a browser, has a plug-in that will trigger card space. So we've got that kind of interoperability going on. Um, but as a service provider, you know, I like the idea of delegating the authentication authorization step to generate SAML tokens. So this is a way to facilitate that by attaching it to a managed card. Right. So that not only can I give the user a better experience, but then also it triggers getting me the token I need from some service over there that I own that is responsible only for generating tokens, right? Michelle, what can you tell us about OpenID, what it is, and how it relates to CardSpace? I think, you know, in depth I haven't looked at it, but I would say that it's really intended to provide a similar CardSpace experience on non-Windows platform. I mean, really, there's nothing else to say, right? Yeah, I guess. Um, so the point is that on, you know, Linux, if I'm in an interoperability, if I'm in a scenario that requires interoperability and users are from a different client UI, but I have a .NET service or a WCF service, I can trigger Federation still, and they can still write code that will, you know, work with the card. Okay. Okay, so so answer my question. What cool demos are you going to show? Um, so so basically, claims-based security. Um, I wrote I wrote some um, custom attributes and custom permission demands and custom, uh, you know, basically three different ways that you can generate claims for the security uh, context. And I wrapped it all up into attributes that you could sort of just apply to your service operations and stuff. So I think that's pretty cool. Nice. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it, and, and I think the reason I went into this long story to explain that was that even though internally everything is represented as claims, there is no first class sort of attributes today that is implemented in WCF to just do a claims-based permission demand. Hmm like we do normal permission demands. So it's not all that hard to extend the environment, and that's probably why they didn't bother you know, building it in, because 
they knew we could do it, and mm-hmm. so I did it. And I, I mean, probably after understanding everything first, which is much more than a day, it probably only took a day to actually build the actual attributes and such. So, cool. so I demo that. It's actually already on my website too. My blog um, has examples for this, and of course, it's in my book, right? Right, right. Um, and then uh, it's definitely card space. I've got a lot of interesting demos for card space. Just working with. Uh, uh, both browser-based and also WCF services, right? So that's pretty fun stuff. Um, reliable messaging is a pretty cool feature of WCF. You know, the whole idea that I can overcome interim hiccups in network connectivity. So I like to do some pretty nifty demos on that just to illustrate all the messaging that's actually going on in the plumbing and hmm. uh, stuff like that. So um, those are probably some of my top top things. So do any of your demos approach like Star Trek kind of, you know, computer. <laughs> you know, you wave a key, you wave a key fob and it adds a security token and computer understands you and Okay, I've done that demo. Um actually at PDC, uh going back a year and a half ago, I did a card space demo for John Chuchuk who was doing uh I I worked with the card space team. I don't know if I mentioned this where I actually worked on the bits in beta 1. Wow, wow. Integrated those bits with uh, external devices that carried security tokens, or sorry, information cards for card space. Is there no end to your greatness? Oh, come on now. I'm serious. <laughs> well, so it was a fun project. I'm in awe. It was a lot of work getting in there under the bits, of course, because I had to read a whole bunch of 65-page specs, you know, just oh. to get an understanding of all these. I had to really understand know, how digital signatures work and all of these things. So we were building SAML tokens from these devices. And so I've seen things work that don't actually work today in card space because those are part of vNext um, or vFuture. Right. Hmm. In fact, I'm going to be talking to somebody from the card space team after our call today. It's too bad we didn't before. Well, actually, probably whatever we're talking about, I couldn't share anyway. Yeah, it'd be probably. all NDA. <laughs> yeah. Then you'd be just conflicted. Yeah, that would have been. Would have, well, I can't tell you about that. Yeah, so, you know, um, so CardSpace is pretty damn cool. Um, the only thing is is that I can't demo that anymore because it only worked on beta 1 bits. It doesn't work on, you know, the release bits right now because there's a new generation of that. Yeah, so. I'm just, I was just thinking, like, what do I go download to get myself some CardSpace? Where do you go download? to get? Yeah, what, what do I want to, to have on my machine as far as CardSpace is concerned? To play it, around with it. There's no implementation oh, well, right um, now. It's just you for developing. Vista, as you probably know, Vista comes with .NET three, and that also includes CardSpace. So basically, CardSpace is already on Vista. So version one is out in the world right now. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, and thanks for bringing that up because I guess I take that for granted, right? Um, and then on XP SP two, you can install .NET three, and when you install the runtime, um, you get CardSpace as well, so that installs CardSpace in the uh, control panel. I wonder, does, does and I don't know the answer to this, I can figure it out, but does uh, .NET 3.0 show up in the list of recommended updates in Windows Update or Microsoft Update? It does. I don't, I don't it's know. It's an optional update, but it is there. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that is cool. So, so CardSpace, once you've got that on your machine, to use it, you just basically need to build a little app that triggers it. So there's two ways to do that. One is through your web applications, your ASP.NET apps, right? 
And I have an article on that in ASP Pro and also coming out an MSDN May issue, I think. Cool. Um, so that will help. Um, and then you can also do it, obviously, with WCF by using Federation bindings. So those are the two ways to trigger the experience. And it's, it is going to take some time here, people getting getting an, and implementing card space on their machines and websites wanting it. Right. So, you know, there's a growing trend for websites to start associating cards. But, yeah, it's going to take a little while. This might be a difficult question for you to answer, but um, what are the holes in WCF in terms of things that it could do better or things that they that problems that are still there that weren't addressed? Like any, any work yet to be done? Well, there's lots of work to be done. I mean, a lot of it's related to tooling, which is really not done yet anyways because it's coming with Orcus. So um, ways to, you know, better generate proxies, you know, through the Visual Studio UI, for example. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, that's probably number one. But I in terms of plumbing, it's all it's all there? You know, the plumbing is pretty darn solid, I have to say. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that you can extend the environment. So I guess any place where I've looked at extending the environment, you could say that's a, a place where why wasn't that already there? Right. But I don't know that I would be complaining about that if I can do it myself, you know, so quickly after already knowing the platform. And the interop story in terms of... Um, the story is fantastic. Yeah. I mean, that's... That's a no-brainer, yeah. In terms of interoperating with other platforms, servers? Oh, absolutely, because it's all based, in fact, all of WCF is based on WS Star and, you know, the core web service standards. So yeah. everything, literally anything you do, I mean, if you want to flip the switch and say, let's make it interoperable, then you choose an interoperable binding, like a web service binding that, yeah. um, you know, uses either text or MTOM. Are there any major companies that are are so, sort of bucking the standards and trying to uh, steer away from you know uh, uh, causing trouble? <laughs> Basically, not adhering to standards. There was, um, I mean, I'm not sure if you're going down the road of rest versus soap. Um, well, uh, yeah, that's one up. Uh, that's one thing. But you know, like if you if you bring it down to something everybody can understand, you know, browsers. Is there a Netscape out there sticking thorns in in the standards, uh, you know that 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 cause trouble for everyone else? No, no, right now I think that you know anything that's in Oasis that has been either ratified or close to ratified, uh, we're in agreement. So what I would say is this: there are some emerging standards like for reliability that have had a long road um, because there's actually a, a conflicting. Uh, standard, like, called WS reliability as opposed to reliable messaging. You know what I mean? So that can get confusing, but I guess my point is it's not about the platform having the problem because, you know, WCF has focused on, you know, all of the WS star standards that consider, and this is important, consider both um, not only, you know, the protocol that they're trying to solve the problem for, like reliable messaging or transactions, but also that they incorporate into WSDL with policy and that they consider other standards in the stack, like security and addressing. And so where there's been conflict, not in the platforms, but in the protocol um, refinement, 
is that there have been other protocols that came before, say, WS transactions or WS reliability or WS eventing um, that have kind of ignored WSDL and ignored policy. And that's actually not because they were blatantly ignoring it. It's just they were trying to come up with a standard that did, you know, two-way eventing. And at the time, policy was not ratified and still isn't actually. So they didn't consider it, right? They just wanted a standard that did nothing but eventing. And so, so what's happened is now, because there's an old standard and a new one, these standards need to converge. And the converging process takes a while for agreement to come and then finally to figure out a way to sort of deprecate, if you will, the older standard and make everybody follow the new one. Um, we've got another problem with that in the identity world, right, with Federation because there's uh, Liberty Alliance, which has one camp, uh, and then there's, uh, you know, obviously card space and there's Federation standards and, you know, there's a bit of a, uh, I guess, a divide, you know, between these people, and only now has there been recent discussions that I think in May of 2006, finally official discussion that they will converge the standards, but how long will it take, right? Right, yeah. Uh, and, and, and I said earlier, card space is sort of universal standards. It really is it. It's a Microsoft-centric thing that works with some of this other stuff. Well, okay, card space is Microsoft's implementation of an identity provider. Right. It's built on top of standards like Federation and Information Card, which is originally was sort of created by Microsoft, but is neutral now. It's not an official standard yet, but it is heading in that direction. Right. And out of left field, um, is DIME still the standard for sending attachments? Shame on you, Carl. So I don't know. I know. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> so, so attachments over web services has a long history of pain, um, starting with SOAP with attachments, which was the original spec. Mm-hmm. And that became part of basic profile. So people that are doing, you know, there's an organization called Web Services Interoperability Org, mm-hmm. um, and they have all these profiles for what vendors should agree on, right? So part of basic profile is uh, there's a basic attachments profile for w- SWA, which is SOAP with attachments. Anyway, what that did is it made it possible to take binary data out of the XML so you didn't parse it and plop it into a MIME encoded boundary. Yeah. Which is typical MIME, right? Like yep. nothing, no brain surgery here. Now, what happened with DIME is they said, well, let's come up with a standard that um, allows us to, uh, you know, head toward incorporating security and addressing and other things with the way we uh. separate, you know, uh, with, with the way we encode the binary data. And so DIME never went anywhere, okay? So DIME basically was sort of a hiccup along the way to what we have now, which is MTOM. And MTOM has been approved since January 2005, so it is a well-adopted standard. So it's no wonder you said shame on you, because that's like a two-year-old question. Yeah, but that's okay, because you don't live in the space of WS Star, and few do, right? Well, here's my experience. First of all, I saw some things about Dime, and and then I never heard from it again. I never heard about it again, but I never never read anything about anything that uh, did what it did. So I actually implemented a file transfer protocol using web services that works pretty darn well, and uh, I put it out there just on you know on my website you know and and some people are using it and using it very successfully and of course it's not about interop it's just about 
web, you know, windows to windows, although it uses standard contracts. So I don't understand what the big problem is. So, but, but people were, you know, I got some emails that like, why don't you just use the standard stuff? And the answer is it's too complex for me. You know, it's just too, too, I I just don't get it. Okay. So probably, especially before, um, with having to add on WSI to your Azimax to get MTOM, Uh, if there's any more acronyms I can throw into a sentence. Really? Almost sounds dirty. Yeah, I know. You gotta wipe yourself off. I know, geez. So, (laughs) that didn't sound right, did it? Um, anyway. (laughs) So, so now it should be easy, even for you, Carl. Good. Because all you have to do is turn on, basically, you create a service, right? And you're gonna have binary data passed in it, then you don't even have to say which parameter is the binary data. It doesn't matter. You can just pass a byte array. Say you just pass a byte array anywhere you like inside a complex type or as a parameter, and then you expose it over either basic HTTP binding, which is SOAP 1.1, or WS HTTP binding, which is SOAP 1.2, right? So pick your protocol. Yeah. But then you turn on MTOM encoding. Okay. And when you turn on MTOM encoding, it's all magic, because what happens is um, the plumbing automatically sees the byte array, right? And before deciding to encode it, which is what bloats it by three times, um, it says, oh, is this over, say, 200 characters? And if it is, 200 bytes, then let's move it out into a MIME encoded boundary, and away we go. And then it uses XOP, which is a standard for referencing that MIME boundary. Does it do any kind of compression, or is that an option? It's an option if you wanted to add that as a custom encoder, but it's not automatically compressed. It's just as it is. All right. Easy enough for you to use the zip stuff to just compress a byte array before you send it. and exactly. ex- Yeah, easy enough. Yeah. And we keep coming back to this concept that all this is going to get easier as the tools improve, which sometimes I worry undermines, like, why are we talking about it then? But I guess, you know, you've made this point a couple of times, which is this, if you are working on an application right now that involves authentication or some kind of, of security model, you better include card space in your thinking. Well, at least to think about it, I, I, I think to say you'd better is a bit strong right now, but I think that you should at least be thinking about claim space because then you could evolve your way to card right. space. Easily. It's just, it, it's in your best interest. If you, this yeah. is where we're all going. So yeah. if you don't, you know, think about this, you may be suddenly realizing I've got to rewrite all this code. Yeah, exactly. And the same with WCF. Mm. If you're in dealing with the issues around remoting or around uh, web services, you've got to include WCF in your thinking because it's where things are going and you will just cause yourself pain if you don't include it somehow. You know, you brought up a really good point, both of you, um, related to complexity and the tools making this better. Um, a lot of people, you know, might sort of at first blush look at WCF and think, good God, how am I going to make sense of this? Look at all this yeah. stuff. Yeah. There's an awful lot of power there, right? So it can be a little bit daunting. And I think that if you kind of simplify um, matters a little bit and sort of Take a step back and think about how you design a system, okay? Before I look at the actual protocols I'm going to use when I deploy, shouldn't I already have a pretty darn good idea that these are the sort of major business functionality that I need to build? Um, These are, quote-unquote, the services then 
that I will expose. Yep. Um, these are the operations that we need to support. And what is our security model? Are we getting clients from all places where we need to support many different types of security? Are we always on the inter- intranet and using Windows? Um, what's our policy? You know, and, and if we need to think about that because we want to move towards claims space, then that's all fine and dandy. But at the end of the day, you have a pretty good idea when you go through the design. I mean, in one day, I can work with a company, for example, on what should your security model be. And then basically you take that and you apply it to the binding. But if you go to the binding first and try to look at all the buttons and knobs and say, oh, my goodness, what do sure. I pick? You're going to be completely lost. But WCF is no harder than what we did in the past. I mean, if all you are looking for is a simple Azimax endpoint, then all you're doing is basic HTTP binding. Right? I, I, liken, I liken it to somebody who just wants like a a microphone and something to record it onto to walk into a pro audio store and see a 24-channel, 32-channel digital mixing console with all sorts of dials and knobs on it and go, oh, my God, you know? Yeah, exactly. And they won't know what to do with it, right? Right. So they got to go, they got to understand the concepts that they're applying before they can buy that device. They got to yeah. know. They got to know they need it. Or exactly. Or like a camera, right, that has all kinds of features on it and Lenses and choices. Well, how do you choose a lens? I don't know. I've never taken training in that, right? So you got to understand security and what you're doing before you apply it. You have to understand transactions and where you need it before you apply it. And that brings us to training. There you go. <laughs> Somebody well, you ought know, to be teaching people about this stuff, Michelle. What a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> Who, who's, who's doing that? Who does training? Well, first of all, you, you know, we said it before, you had a very successful. Uh, class here in New London, and you've been teaching this class that Yuval and you guys have put together all over the place, all over the world, you guys yeah. have been teaching this. I was in Sweden in January, brr. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So uh, so it's been very successful. Um, yeah. A lot of people are ready for WCF, so I'm finding that that's a very um, appropriate class. You know, people are, are ready for it. So, and what's good about it is you get to sort of revisit the principles of security and transactions and 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 sessions and you know when you need that type of thing. I mean, it, it's not just about how does WCF do it, but it's also about why do we need these things, right? So and we have uh, we have Brian Noyes coming to New London May twenty first. It was going to be you, but uh, apparently you had a some other opportunity. I don't know something something that was more important. I think they booked me, double booked me. Oh, really? Is that what happened? Yeah, I'm in Sweden and again. But you all know, three of you guys. You know, I, you know, I miss you. I'd love to come there. But, well, I was going to say all three of you guys have, have your heads in .NET 3.0 and in WCF, not just you and Juval, but Brian as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, pretty, it's a pretty fun topic, so you got to like it. So, um, but of course, you know, my book covers a lot of this stuff too, right? Of course. Definitely. I always start with the book. Actually, the book is um, officially this week. Um, uh, they are updating Rough Cuts with the latest and greatest chapters. And nice. And rough, rough Cuts is, you know, um, if you go to my blog, I'm going to have a, a link to it from there. Um, but Rough Cuts is where you can get access to the whole book now, and then they have it printed in May, and they send you a copy when it's printed. 
So, and um, Amazon.com does have the book listed right now, showing yeah. available May 1st. Awesome. There you go. Uh, did you write any jokes in the book? I didn't put any jokes in the book just because you never know who the audience is. So, right. Um, I oh, but it's I'd totally put... okay to, to, to tell dirty jokes on .NET Rocks? Yeah, because, <laughs> you know, it's not in print, right? So it's... did I really say it, or was it a stand-in? <laughs> it was... Well, let's play your voice back and see if you really said it. <laughs> Carl's audio trickery, that's what that was. Exactly. <laughs> so Why, good. Are, you, are you hinting that you want a joke? Of course. Okay. Are you ready for a joke now? Yeah, I think I think so. So, um, one of those bar jokes, maybe. Let's see. Um, okay, I have a couple jokes. I'll give you the first one. And Shock it's, it's, us, Michelle. Shock us. <laughs> I should be a guy telling this, but that's okay. <laughs> um, as per usual, right? Yeah, as usual. Okay, so let's see. Um, so, there's this guy walks into a bar. As you know, you may have heard this one before. <laughs> so this rather confident man walks into a bar sits next to a very attractive woman and he gives her a quick glance and then he sort of casually looks at his watch for a second and the woman notices this and she says, oh, is your date running late? And he says, no, I just bought this state-of-the-art watch. I was just testing it. And so she's a bit intrigued, right? And she looks at him and says, a state-of-the-art watch? What's so special about it? And he says, well, it uses alpha waves to telepathically talk to me. You know, and she says, so, I'll bite. What's it telling you now? And he says, well, it says you're not wearing any panties. (laughs) (laughs) And the woman sort of giggles and replies, well, it must be broken then because I am wearing panties. And he says, damn, thing must be an hour fast. (laughs) 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 Nice. Yeah. That's a fine joke. That's a good way to end the show. Is that a good way to end the show? Unless okay. you got another one. She said she oh, had a I couple. I always have another one. You want another one? Sure. <laughs> okay. Hey, can I swear? I don't know. Of course. Okay, so any young listeners, please exit. To your career. <laughs> it's my career? Oh, really? Okay, I won't. I forget it. <laughs> hey, we, no, no. We have the power of the bleep. Go ahead. We will strategically bleep you, we guarantee. Okay, so let's see. Okay, so three men, um, a doctor, a lawyer, and a biker. They're sitting at a bar over a couple drinks. You know, I used to be a bartender, right? So I have all these bar jokes. They're all bar jokes, right? Always bar jokes. I know. Um, So, okay, so this guy, the doctor, takes a sip of his martini, and he says, you know, tomorrow's my anniversary. I bought my wife a diamond ring and a new Mercedes. And if she doesn't like the diamond ring, then at least she'll like the Mercedes, and she'll know that I love her, right? And so the lawyer finishes his scotch, and... He says, well, on my last anniversary, I bought my wife a string of pearls and a trip to the Bahamas because I figured, you know, if she didn't like the pearls, then at least she would enjoy the trip and she'd know I love her. And the biker takes a big swig from his beer and he says, yeah, well, for my anniversary, I got the old lady a T-shirt and a vibrator. I figured if she didn't like the T-shirt, she could go f*** herself. And on that note, thanks, Michelle. <laughs> it's always a pleasure having you on the show. Ah, uh, thanks, Carl. It's, it's a .NET Rocks tradition now. Great talking to you. I know. We have to do this at least twice a year. Absolutely. I think so. Okay, All right, well, Michelle, we'll catch you. I always appreciate that, too. And we'll catch up with you sometime in the very near future. Well, Dev Connections, right? Yes. Dev Connections. Right. Orlando. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. 
Dotnet Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got transmitter bands by the FCC Yes, I'm a, a time